0: So this morning I'll be reading from Romans 1, 18 through 32. If you're willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. As we go to read this passage, I would remind you that this is indeed the eternal Word of God. It is true forever, and it is a life-giving, precious gift to us. And I pray and hope that we all will receive it as such this morning. Let's hear the living and abiding Word of God. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up and the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. In John chapter 17, you will find Jesus' uh, high priestly prayer, a wonderful prayer that he prays for his people. And one of the things that he prays is this, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. So he is asking our loving Heavenly Father to make us, his people, more like Jesus through the truth of his word. In John chapter 8, Jesus said to those who had believed in him, if you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus always affirmed, he always exalted the value, the importance of the truth, the word of God. And today, we will look at the truth of God's word in Romans chapter 1. What it has to say about the human condition. What it has to say about God's good design for sexual intimacy And how mankind has rejected that good design in exchange for sexual immorality. In particular, in exchange for same-sex relations. And then we will close with what I hope will be a word of truth on the comfort and call of the gospel in regards to these truths that we consider this morning. Beloved, I want you to know this truth. To know these truths and to turn to Jesus as your savior and friend. And I pray that we collectively, as a local expression of the body of Christ, and also we individually, each one of us, will be the kind of friend to others that Jesus indeed is to us. So let's begin by remembering the theme of the book of Romans. The theme of Romans is the gospel of God, the righteousness of God, or the salvation of God. And the theme verse is verse 16 and 17 from chapter 1. I would encourage you to memorize it if you haven't already. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Remember the broad outline of this book as well. We're looking at guilt and then grace and then gratitude. So these first three chapters, Paul shows us, he's making the argument for our guilt. He wants us to see our need. The need that every single one of us have for the gospel, for God's salvation. And so we are going to take several weeks to cover this opening section on guilt. To see the human condition, the common human condition, apart from the grace of God in Christ. Last week we looked at Verses 18 through 23 of chapter 1. And we saw the wrath of God is revealed. And we saw that you and everyone you know, without exception, we all deserve the wrath of God. His righteous punishment against our sin. And the only way that we can be saved from this wrath of God is if Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, takes it in our place. If we trust in his death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and receive his free gift of righteousness and eternal life. That was last week. Now we continue this week through the end of Romans 1 today. And the main point from, let's say, verses 24 through the end of the chapter is this. Idolatry or false worship leads to the wrath of God, which reveals itself in our sexual immorality. So that sexual immorality illustrates spiritual depravity. That's what we see in this passage. Three times in verses 24 through 28, we read the phrase, God gave them up. Beginning in verse 24, "...therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity." And that word for impurity means uncleanness. It's used to refer to sexual sin. You can hear it in the description. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Then verse 26, the second time, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then third time, verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So three times, God gave them up to impurity, dishonoring their bodies, to dishonorable passions, to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. This is God's wrath displayed. The fallen human condition given over to sexual immorality. That's that's the result. But what is the cause? Now, before we answer that from the text, I want us to remember what the truth of God's word has to say about sexual intimacy. Not all sexual activity is wrong. We must remember... That our good God created sex. And it is a good gift from a good and loving God to be enjoyed in the context of His design. He's the creator, He gets to tell us how it's to be used. And that good design is between one man and one woman in the bonds of covenant marriage. That's it. That is the beautiful river of God's good design. And any time the waters of that river overflow these God-created banks, the result is a muddied perversion, a path of destruction, impurity, uncleanness, immorality. Whether that be premarital intimacy, adultery, pornography, or even abuse in marriage, God's wrath is displayed in the fallen human condition given over to sexual immorality of all kinds. That is the result, but what's the cause? What leads to that? Verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, because, so here we're gonna have the cause, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, Amen. Again, in verse 26, it says, for this reason. For that same reason, he just said, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For what reason? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 28 puts it this way. Since or because they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up. So, beloved, the fallen human condition is a worship problem. It's an idolatry problem. We worship the wrong thing. We do not worship God, our creator, as he designed. We, everyone ever created, was made to worship God and worship him alone. He alone is God. He alone is the creator. He alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is the perfection of beauty and goodness and holiness and righteousness, the fountain of life and joy and everything good. But we, every person, we reject him. We dethrone him. We cast him off. We shove God, our creator, aside. And instead, we worship created things in his place. And this is idolatry. It is false worship. And it is the biggest problem of our lives. It is the biggest problem of every person's life. And it leads to the wrath of God, which is then displayed and our sexual immorality. So the result, the effect, is sexual immorality. The cause is false worship or spiritual depravity. Now, what does this passage say about relations between people of the same sex? You might ask, well, why focus on this topic? And there are two reasons. First, because Paul does. Because God's word addresses this topic in this passage. So we must address it. The biggest problem in our lives is idolatry. False worship. Idolatry is unnatural. It goes against the way God created us. It is contrary to what we were made for. We were made to worship God, our creator. And and instead, we exchange that for the worship of created things. So in the sexual sphere... Relations among people of the same sex mirrors this unnatural worship. It's an illustration of what is unnatural. Relationships, relations between people of the same sex is a demonstration of what has happened in the spiritual world. So think of it this way. We have exchanged the worship and the glory of God, one who is unlike us, for the worship of something that is like us. Fellow created human beings. Likewise, in relations between people of the same sex, we exchange God's good gift designed to be enjoyed with the opposite sex, someone unlike us, different from us, we exchange that for relations with people of the same sex, someone like us. So this impurity, the words the scriptures use, impurity, dishonorable passion, shameless acts, these are contrary to nature. It's an illustration of our spiritual idolatry. Disordered desires reflect disordered worship. So the truth about this kind of behavior is that it is a sin against the holy God and his created order. It is unnatural. So one reason we focus on it is because it's there in the text. But a second reason I think is important for us to focus on this specific issue today is because it is one of the major issues heresies of our day. And so today, I hope to provide clarity in a world of confusion, to speak God's truth in a world of lies. Pastors and elders, we are called to shepherd the flock in the fear of God. And part of that shepherding includes both feeding and protecting the flock. We are called to feed you not with what your itching ears might want to hear, but with the truth that comes from the word of God. And we also are called to protect you from lies. And in today's world, there are flocks of, there are, we should call them, packs of wolves everywhere seeking to destroy the flock of Christ. There is a roaring lion seeking to devour you. And he does not rest And there is a father of lies who has even infiltrated the church and he is causing much harm to people today. Beloved, bad theology harms people. It does great damage. And so to protect you this morning, beloved, I want to do two things. I want to both proclaim the truth of what this word says and also expose some of the lies. Some of the ways that people will twist this passage and try to give it a new meaning today. So some will say that when Paul wrote these words, he knew nothing of loving, committed, monogamous, same-sex relationships. That instead, he was only speaking against abusive relationships, such as perhaps older men with younger boys, or relationships with an obvious power imbalance. That is not what the passage says. It's not what the passage says. Let's read the verses again. The key text here is verse 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The actual text gives no indication that only abusive kinds of same-sex relations are prohibited. The wording that Paul actually uses is not limited to a specific kind. Instead, it's a broad, it's a general, it is an absolute prohibition. We can follow his argument. He mentions women first, or females, and there's no evidence in the ancient world of older females engaging in this kind of behavior with younger females. There's no mention in the passage of older men with younger boys, but only of males with males. In fact, Paul roots this prohibition in the created order. The words that he uses for men and women are not the general words that are sometimes used in the scripture for man and woman, but the more specific word that is actually used for male and female. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 10 when he says, but from the beginning of creation, God created them male and female. Paul is using the Greek for- form of the Hebrew words that are found in Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's another great passage for you to memorize, to remember. So relations with same-sex violate the distinction that God intended when he created us male and female. Further, when Paul says women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, that phrase, contrary to nature, is a phrase that was common in the ancient world. You find it in the scriptures, but you also find it outside the scriptures. In the writings of men like Plato and Plutarch and Philo and Josephus, the Jewish historian at this time, they use that term as well to speak of same-sex relations as a whole, not limited to some abusive form. Going on, when Paul says men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, that phrase, consumed with passion, refers to an unnatural lust. It's not simply a good desire— That has become too strong, right? We have many God-given good desires. The desire for marriage can be a good desire. The desire to have children can be a good desire. The desire to provide for your family is a good desire. But this desire is not like that, where it's taking a good desire and just wanting something too much, right? So you can take a good desire to provide for your family and turn that into something too much if you go about fulfilling it in ungodly, unlawful ways, or if you, be, you begin to love money, and it's never enough. So a good desire can become too strong in your life and become an evil desire, a lust. That's not what this is talking about. It's not a perversion of something good. It is a lust directed at something that is essentially, and under all circumstances, illegitimate. The desire is never okay. Now, some will say that when Paul uses the phrase, contrary to nature... What he means is, it's referring to how the individual was made, to their natural orientation. Such that if you, from birth or from as long as you can remember, you always had the desire for this kind of intimacy with someone of the same sex, then it would be contrary to your nature for you to express that intimacy with someone of the opposite sex. But there, again, is no evidence anywhere that Paul understood the nature of human beings in this more recent individualized and psychological sense that is rampant today. Instead, what he did understand and what he's arguing in this section here of Romans 1 on human guilt is that all of life is disordered. Sin permeates all of nature. And since that is true, rooting anything in nature proves nothing because our nature is fallen and sinful. Since all of life is disordered, all humankind, we are born with a sinful nature. So we need a higher norm, a higher standard than our fallen human nature to try to determine what is right and wrong, what is good and what is natural. And beloved, that higher norm is the word of God. We've been given it from God himself. And it includes what we see here in Romans chapter one. Many people reject that standard, that authority. And so I've shared some of the lies that we will hear. Well, many people will just outright reject the authority of Scripture, especially on this issue, but at least some of them are honest. One of them is Luke Timothy Johnson. He's the professor of New Testament. Um, And he says this, and this is what he says. Listen, this is an example of someone who's rejecting the authority of the Word of God. But he says this, The task, and he's dealing with this whole issue of same-sex relations, the task demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says, to appeal to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says, so so far we'd agree with him. We know what the text says. If we see ourselves as liberal, then we must be liberal in the name of the gospel. I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same sex unions can be holy and good. Do you hear what he's saying? He knows what the Scripture says and he rejects it and he re- appeals to a different authority. What is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience. There have to be echoes of judges in that statement. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We appeal to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is, in fact, to accept the way in which God has created us. By so doing... We explicitly reject as well the premises of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality. So personal experience is exalted above the authority of the word of God. Beloved, that is something Jesus, your Savior, never did. And he never would do. It's also worthwhile to note that Donald Fortson, a church historian, he surveyed church history from the first century up until the middle of the 20th century, so the the first 2,000 years of the New Testament church, and this was his conclusion. After doing that study, homosexual practice has been affirmed nowhere, never, by no one in the history of Christianity. He found no church leader, no Christian denomination, no creed that ever affirmed same-sex relations as consistent with Jesus' teaching. Friends, this is a modern-day heresy. Now, we don't have to fear it, but what do we need to do? We need to to know and believe the truth. And we need to teach it to one another and teach it to our children. So what does this passage say about relations between the same sex? It says that these kind of relations are a display of the wrath of God. They are unnatural. To engage in them is to transgress God's good design. His design that transcends culture. His design that is universal and it is absolute. Same-sex relations go against God's good gift and design, and they are never pleasing to God in any way, shape, or form. God's word says that relations between people of the same sex is a serious sin. Is a violation of the created order. This kind of activity, like idolatry, is an affront to the design of the creator. And everyone knows that at some level. Everyone knows that at some level. It is written on the conscience of mankind. So verse 32 tells us this. Though they know God's righteous decree. That those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So they know God's righteous decree. His righteous decree, that means it is good, it is right, it is just, it is pure. When it says those who practice them deserve to die, it is not advocating the death penalty for those who commit such sins. This is not talking about physical death or punishment. It's talking about the righteous judgment of God. The wrath of God as punishment for our sin. The wages of sin is death, Paul will say in Romans chapter 6. So the just punishment for these sins, for any sin, is death. Death to our relationship with God, of which the end result is eternity in hell. Paul says people not only engage in this sinful behavior, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is what we see in our day and age today. And beloved, this is no small thing. It is no small thing in God's eyes to encourage, to support what harms our fellow creatures and dishonors our creator. Contrary to what the world will shout at you today, it is truly more destructive. It is more destructive, not less. To encourage people to fulfill their desire for sexual intimacy with a person of the same sex. It is more destructive, not less. To give approval to this kind of behavior, it may appear to be the most loving thing to do. And that is what the world is shouting at us today. You must affirm and support people in these relationships. That is the loving thing to do. It may seem like you are looking out for their best interests, wanting them to be their authentic true self, to flourish, to be happy as a human being, to enjoy the kind of relationship and fellowship that we all would want to enjoy, fellowship with another human being. It may appear that that is a good and loving thing to do, but in reality, God's word tells us it is the very opposite. Since God is love and he truly wants all humans to flourish, as our creator, he alone knows with perfect wisdom the path to that flourishing. And so, it is not loving. Nor would it actually cause a person to flourish as a human to encourage them to pursue relations with the same sex. It's not loving and it will not lead to their ultimate happiness. Instead, it is a direct contradiction to God's word. So, beloved, ask yourself will I listen to God or will I listen to man? The father of lies, the great deceiver, has no power, has no influence over God. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. God is truth. But the father of lies, he deceives mankind all the time. Jeremiah tells us our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know them? So, beloved, who will you trust? The God who made you, who truly knows you and loves you, or fellow man. The approval that we are encouraged to give, that we see given to this behavior today, is in direct contradiction to God's word. It's exactly what we see in our world today. And sadly, it's what we are see, seeing increasingly in churches across our land. We see it in some Presbyterian churches. So we, there are different branches to the Presbyterian church. So if you're new to the Presbyterian church, you're not familiar, there are many different kinds. We belong to the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. And so we are not giving approval to this message. You should be able to go to any PCA church and hear the same message I'm preaching to you today. The Presbyterian Church USA, United States of America, would preach a very different message. Perhaps not every individual church, but as a denomination, they would preach the opposite. You would hear some of those twistings that I've mentioned earlier. Some Lutheran churches The ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, would also preach the opposite of what I'm saying today. There's a prominent one right in the center of Mount Joy. United Church of Christ would preach the opposite of what I'm saying today. There's a prominent one right in the center of Elizabethtown. Some Church of the Brethren would preach the opposite. Thankfully, not Florin Church of the Brethren, where we were privileged to meet for three years. We stand with our brothers and sisters as they hold up the truth of God's word. But there are becoming splits in different denominations over this very issue. Some Mennonite churches, I'm not familiar with any in this area. Some Episcopal churches. Right now, the United Methodist Church is going through, there's going to be a split in that denomination over this very issue. The Father of Lies is infiltrating the church of Jesus Christ and causing division. And truly, he is speaking from the pulpits of many of these churches as opposed to the spirit of the living God. May that never be true for us. Well, how do we respond to what this passage has to say today? There is much more that can be said that really needs to be said than can be said in one sermon on this topic. And we must say this. We have much to learn. We need to listen to those who know more than we do in this area. And if I've said anything today that is hurtful or harmful, I would want you to let me know. I'm not talking about a difference in agreement over what the truth of God's word says. But if there's a manner in which I've said it, if there's an emphasis that maybe has been harmful, we need to learn to talk about this in a way that's full of both truth and grace. And we need to learn to listen to our brothers and sisters who may experience these desires, but they long with all their heart to walk in truth, to walk in holiness. And there are wonderful resources available today. Harvest USA is a wonderful ministry in our area that can help in this area. We have many print resources in our office if you want to follow up and talk with me and and use some of those. There are people here who would be glad to listen and to talk with you and seek to understand and pray and come alongside you. But how do we respond? What's the comfort and call of the gospel to those who may feel condemned by this passage? What's the comfort and call of the gospel to those who may feel condemned by this passage? And those who f- may feel condemned by this passage should be all of us. Should be all of us. Why do I say it should be all of us? Well, let's look at verses 29 to 31. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That list of sins is not meant to be exhaustive. It's example. It's, they are examples of the kinds of sins that follow from disordered worship, from idolatry, and it's meant to convict every single person. Remember, this opening section is on guilt. What's Paul's purpose? To show that we all are guilty and fall short of the glory of God. If that's not clear enough, this is where it's helpful. If you have your Bible open, just look at the first verse of chapter 2 where Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We are all guilty of sin and we all deserve God's wrath. And listen self-righteous judgment of same-sex relations is just as damning as the same-sex behavior itself. So, beloved, we must strive to make the sin that we hate the most, the sin that disturbs us the most, that we fight against the most, be our own sin, the sin of our own hearts. We are all equally in need of God's saving grace. All are needy, and that includes you. Every one of you. No matter how holy you are, how sinful you are, we are all guilty and in need of salvation, in need of the righteousness of God, the righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God, we have what we need from Jesus. That's the study we're getting into. So stick with me through these weeks. Now I have to cheat, I have to go ahead and bring in the good news every week. But actually it's not cheating because the, the letter is meant to be read all at once. So Paul's making his argument and taking us to the good news. But at any rate, let's let's remember this this call of the gospel is to repent. For all of us, it's to, tur- it's to turn to Jesus once again today, or maybe for the first time today. You cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive my sins through the death of your son. Help me to obey you, to walk in newness of life. I would encourage you to read Romans 5 and 6, to meditate on it, to even memorize it. Those two chapters can be incredibly helpful for us and responding to the call of the gospel, and in fighting against the sin of our own hearts. What about the comfort of the gospel? Romans 5 8, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ died for all kinds of sinners, including the ones that he describes here in Romans chapter 1. And then he will say in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So the comfort of the gospel is that God forgives us and he changes our lives forever. Listen, there are people who have this disordered desire that we've talked about and they know and love Jesus. And Jesus knows and loves them. This may be an unwinded desire that they have had for as long as they can remember. And they believe what the Bible says. They could say amen to what I have preached. And they're making every effort to be holy. To put both the desire and the behavior to death in their lives. Just as you may be. And whatever sins you're fighting against in your own life. And I want to say, if that is you today. If that is your struggle. I say to you and I say to the rest of us. You are created by God in his image for his glory. You are worthy. Of dignity and value and respect. And as we saw in Romans chapter 1. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He has made you his own. And this is your comfort in life and in death. You are loved by God so much that he gave his own son to die for you and you are called to be a saint you are set apart for holiness so what does that mean in reality and before the throne of god today he sees you and loves you just as much as he loves his own son jesus christ righteous in his sight with pure desires and i would say this you are welcome to be or you may already be a beloved member of this church as you strive along with all the rest of us needy family of God in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit to live as becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. This is the comfort and the call of the gospel that we must proclaim, and it informs the kind of gospel culture that we must cultivate here at Proclamation. Jesus is full of grace and truth, So we strive to do the same. When we say all are welcome, what do we mean? We want to point all people to Jesus. Point them to Jesus as the truest friend of sinners that you will ever know. So I ask each one of you today, do you have Jesus as your friend? Do you have Jesus as your friend? He came to save, not to condemn. And you don't earn his friendship by living a righteous life. You receive it as a gift. And then he changes your life. When he makes you his friend, he gives you both the desire and the strength to do what he commands. And you will find that his commands are not burdensome. They are for your greatest good, for your greatest joy. They might not be easy to obey, but it's not a burden. It's a joy. It's a delight. It will lead to true human flourishing. Jesus is your truest friend. He is with you. He is for you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He wants you to be with him where he is to see his glory, to be like him. He has delivered you from sin and he will deliver you. So beloved, for every one of us in our struggles with sin, the day will come. He is right now completing the good work that he has begun in you and it will be perfected in glory. So the day will come when you're not only free from the guilt and power of sin and death, but you're free from its very presence. When all and any disordered desires and actions will be gone forever. Thanks be to God. So may we all grow in trusting our friend and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then also, we need to learn to be the kind of friend to others that Jesus is to us. So beloved, I, I own this with you. But when I give that welcome at the start of the service, you know that places a great responsibility on us. Those can't just be words that I say, that we open our arms wide with a warm welcome in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. You and I, we have to embody that right here in the way we interact with people. In this very room, afterward, as we engage around a meal or in community groups or throughout the week as you interact with people, we have to embody the welcome and the love and the grace that we have received from Jesus Christ. We desperately need it. And remember, don't be the kink in the hose. It doesn't stop with you. It flows through you to others. So we want this local church family to be a place where all kinds of sinners, including those with disordered desires in this area, are valued and welcomed and loved. They are pointed to Jesus along with the rest of us needy people. It's only us. It's not us and them. It's only us. And it must be a place where we can talk honestly about the good things and the hard things and the bad things in our lives. Beloved, Jesus, your friend, he will never heap shame on you. He takes it away. Now, we can't do what only Jesus can do. But we point people to him. He doesn't heap shame on us. He removes it. Jesus does not make fun of us. His words bring healing. So there must be no coarse joking in this area. We have to learn a new way of speaking, some of us. There must be only healing words. Jesus doesn't look down on us. He lifts us up. Jesus knows the worst about us. And he loves us. He loves us perfectly. He loves us fully. So, think of it this way in closing. Let's make our gatherings less like the waiting room for a job interview and more like the waiting room in a hospital. You know, in a job interview, what's happening? You're trying to look as competent, as impressive as you can. Your weaknesses are buried and hidden. You want to impress, you want to look your best, you want to outdo others. And those interactions are not always based in truth. What about a hospital waiting room? Everyone is sick, and they're there to get help. And the truth about your condition and healing is essential that it's made known. So, beloved, let us, in our gatherings, reflect the hospital waiting room, not the job interview. And let us be like our Savior Jesus, full of grace and truth. As we, together, in complete reliance upon the Holy Spirit, we praise our Creator God. We love all people indeed and in truth. And we proclaim the risen Christ, who is the hope of all the world, until he comes. Amen? Amen.